Last week, we started a series that we're calling The Worthiness of God, and in which we're looking primarily, but not exclusively, as you'll see in the weeks to come, at the vision that John gives us of the throne room of God, of God himself, of what's going on in that throne room, which is what we'll see today in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And I told you last week, as we started out this series, that this book and this vision is written to a very specific group of people. It is written to a Christian group of people who suffer. And it's written for the purpose of encouraging their faith, and then by extension, my faith, and by extension, your faith. In other words, John foresees in this revelation that there is a group of people, and they are going to suffer profoundly. They're God's people who are going to suffer profoundly, and he gives them, among other things, this vision of Almighty God on his throne, and the vision that we're going to see today of the Lamb, he gives it to them that they might endure and persevere through this suffering, and ultimately that they might even worship in the midst of it, but he gives it to us as well, and for the same reason. And I want to be a little bit more specific in terms of exactly who I at least think that group of Christians are that this book was originally written to, though it is written as a blessing to the entirety of the church. I really believe in my heart of hearts that this book was written to the group of Christians that passed through the great sufferings and tribulations of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and particularly of Jerusalem's temple in A.D. 70. And that is radically different from what most American evangelical Christians today believe. And it's probably a whole lot different from what some of you believe, right? I mean, that's different. Most of you are going, wow, this is new information. I've never even heard that anybody believes in such a thing. It's not a new position by any means, but it's something I feel like I need to at least address with you guys. I think it was written to that group of people, and it applies to us by extension. In other words, the same vision by which they persevered is the same vision by which we persevere. The same lessons, the same for us as well today, but it's a different take. Most American evangelicals today believe that the prophecies of this book are waiting yet to be fulfilled sometime in the future. And that the next thing on God's agenda prophetically is the rapture of God's people where God will come and he will pull all of his people up out of the world and then will begin a seven-year period of tribulation and sufferings that we're going to get to miss. And just as an aside, I kind of like that idea. I just don't think that's what it teaches. And I think you need to watch for numbers. And you need to interpret them in light of the kind of literature that you find in this book. We'll see an example of that later today. But they think it's all future and that the next thing that's going to happen is a rapture. And then there's going to be a seven-year period of great suffering and tribulation on the earth while we miss it. We're going to be in heaven and then Jesus is going to come back a second time. I kind of think that's an issue because the Bible only speaks of one return. But in any event, and then after that, there's going to be a thousand-year millennial kingdom where Christ reigns from Jerusalem on earth at the end of which literal thousand years in an utterly metaphorical book. At the end of which, there will be a great battle in the Jezreel Valley. I don't know if you've been there. I'm going there in three weeks. I've been there a couple of times. It's beautiful. It would be a great place for a battle. Seriously, it would. And then a great white throne judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. You know what's really cool to me? It is that every orthodox interpretation of the book of Revelation ends up with a new heaven and a new earth. We get there differently, but we end in the same place, and that's comforting. But that's different, isn't it? 
So that's what most American evangelical Christians today believe. Do you hear all those words? Because there's all kinds of qualifying things in that phrase. Most, not all. American, I'm going to touch on that in a second. Evangelical, what has the Catholic Church thought of the end times? How has it interpreted this book? Today, but not always. And I want you to know that for me, all those people who believe that are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Hear that. This is not a point of disunity for me, and I wish that it wasn't for the church at large. I long for the day when we can gather around a table in unity and respectfully and in love talk about stuff like this that really ought not to divide us. But we're not there yet. I just think there are things to consider, you know. I think, for example, that you need to consider that if, if what you think is that, you know, this book is entirely future and the next thing on the agenda is rapture, during which we then miss the sufferings during a seven literal, watch that word literal, years, where suffering is poured out on the earth and so forth, as I've already described, well, you need to understand that you must, therefore, then date the book of Revelation in the A.D. 90s as opposed to the A.D. 60s. I realize that most people don't even realize there's a debate, but there is. Because in A.D. 70, as I've already said, the city of Jerusalem and its temple, that's the biggie, was destroyed exactly, by the way, as Christ prophesied that it would be. It is one of the most terrifyingly, precisely fulfilled prophecies in the entirety of Scripture. It's stunning. Not one stone will be left upon another. The temple was set ablaze and the gold melted. It seeped between the cracks of the stones and the Romans literally overturned every stone to get it out. It's amazing. It's incredible. But that whole system depends on a late date but it, it might have been an early date, and if it is an early date, and that's what I would argue for, then you have to look at that destruction, and it totally reinvents this book for you. All of a sudden, you go, well, wait a minute. It has a completely different meaning. So you have to think about that. You have to think also, I think, if that's your end-time system, that you, know, you have to acknowledge that it's very, very young within the context of the history of the Christian church. In other words, it's about 200 years old, which seems old to me, I mean, that's more than four times my age. You know, it seems old to you. You grew up with it. It's all that most of us ever get to hear, to be honest with you. But it's very, very young. The overwhelming majority of believers in Christ throughout the history of the Christian church have not ascribed to that particular system. Does it mean it's wrong? No, but it's something to think about. And that overwhelming majority includes every significant theologian the church has ever produced. And that's weighty too, I think. I'm just saying we need to consider these things. And I think the fact that it has been primarily an American phenomenon is something that if you're observing things, you need to consider as well. In other words, that system of theology found fertile soil, but pretty much only here. Why is that? Corey Ten Boom, who suffered greatly during World War II in the Nazi concentration camps after World War II, came to the U.S., and she was on the Christian speaking tour, okay? And while she's on the Christian speaking tour, she was exposed to this idea that the prophecies are entirely future, that the next thing that's going to happen is the rapture, and that the really great thing about that is that we're going to miss the sufferings during the seven 
literal years in this incredibly figurative book that's coming. And don't take this the wrong way, please. You've heard my heart on this. It's not a matter of disunity. And I don't think she would want anybody to be offended, but she laughed. And she said, only in America would you devise a theology by which the people of God are exempt from suffering. That's significant. It's an interesting observation, I think, from somebody who is not an American. So my point is that this book, I believe, foresees and anticipates a time of great suffering for the first century people of God. And it provides to them a vision of God and of the Lamb of God, among other things, that we'll see today to sustain them, to encourage them, to rush to the aid of their faith as they suffer through the tribulations that came upon them and upon their people in AD 70. And the Lord, in His wisdom, has preserved those great visions and those great teachings that apply to us today. I do not think the entirety of that book is exhausted in AD 70. We're still looking for the return of Christ, for the new heavens and the new earth. I'm just saying quite a bit of it is. So consider that. The book is written to those who suffer. In the first century and today... And it's written ultimately to cause us to worship even in the midst of it. And worship is the prevailing activity of this vision. Have you noticed that so far? I mean, last week we looked at chapter 4, and John beckons us to come up through the open door of heaven. He causes us to hear the trumpet clarion voice of Christ that is unmistakable and unlike any other sound, and that is a voice that is known to Christians. He brings us up into the throne room of God, and we see the vision of God. And where is He? What is He doing? He's seated upon what is the cosmic throne of the universe. It's stunning. He's blazing forth in the brilliance. Do you see all the metaphors? In the brilliance of diamonds and rubies. The colors of purity, the colors of clarity, the color of judgment, the color also of mercy. The ruby is the bloodstone. He is surrounded by a rainbow, itself an emblem, both of judgment and of mercy, reminding us that the final act of God is not judgment, but that it is mercy, and it's the color of the emerald. It's green. It's the color of spring. It's the color of life. It's awesome. Lightning and thunder is proceeding forth from the throne of this great God and King who sits in the center of all things, who is the source of all things, who is the energy of all things. And he is surrounded by four creatures. They encircle him, oriented to the points of the compass and representing all of the created order, doing what all of the created order is created to do, which is worshiping the king and proclaiming his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He is not just sovereign over all space, but all time. It's magnificent. He's surrounded also by seven roaring torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And then another circle, remember, of the 24 elders who sit upon their throne, clothed in the white garments that come from Christ Himself. We're not pure on our own. Wearing golden crowns that God in His grace has merited and then given to them and representing the people of God. 
all of which sits upon a crystal sea that serves, if you think about the image, as a reflecting pool and reflecting all of this amazing activity and glory of God. It's, it's overwhelming. And what are they all doing? They're all worshiping. They're falling on their face before this one, you see, and they're casting their crowns in the case of the elders. And what are they saying? It's where we ended last week, Revelation 4, verse 11. They start with this word, and it's a very significant word, and you've got to remember this word. They apply it to the God, the Father on the throne, and they say, worthy, that's the word, are who? Are you, our Lord and our God. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, the heavens, the earth, and everything in them, even periods of suffering for the people of God, both in the first century and now, today. All of our sufferings are pursuant to the plan of God. They're included in His plan, which means that they have meaning, that there's a purpose to them both in our hearts and in our lives personally, in our families, in our businesses, and in this world that extend beyond this world and beyond this life. And no, we don't always see what the purpose is, but in faith, when we see a vision like this, we're reminded that there is purpose. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created, we said last week, that the proper response, therefore, to everything that happens to us in life as believers in Jesus is worship. But sometimes you only get that when you see the king, and I would add today, when you see the lamb, when you see Jesus. And that's who John now shows us in chapter 5 as we pick up the vision. In Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1, he says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the rainbow throne, the cosmic throne, the lightning and thunder throne. In the hand of God the Father Almighty, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. Really, what it is, is it's a scroll. It's not a book like you have. It's all rolled up. And he says that this scroll was written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. And that's very significant in terms of the description. In other words, all these details are there for a reason. It's significant because, for example, in John's day, it was highly unusual for them to write on both sides of a scroll. It was very impractical. So only, the only time that that ever happened when, is when there was so much material that there was absolutely no way they could fit it on one side and they couldn't edit it down because it was so incredibly valuable. We cannot leave any of this out. Looks like we're going to have to flip it over and keep going. And the reason the seven seals are significant is because in John's day, last wills and testaments were, were sealed with seven seals. So he's telling you that this deals with death and with inheritance. And if I can just kind of drop to the bottom line, just sort of skip to the chase here, what this is, is this is the battle plan of God the Father Almighty by which He will bring the dominion of heaven to earth. This is His battle plan for bringing judgment upon ungodliness and unrighteousness, both in the first century and all the way to the end, both on the temple and what the temple represents, which still lives. 
It's his book by which he will execute his battle plan upon the earth and, very significantly, by which he will redeem his people and he will give us the inheritance of a new heaven and of a new earth in which righteousness dwells and in which we have perfect relationship with one another and, most importantly, with him forever and ever and ever. This is a very significant scroll. If this scroll doesn't get opened, we're doomed. Everything for God's people, everything is riding upon the opening of this scroll. If you think about it, every suffering and affliction that plagues us in this life, if this scroll is open and executed, will come to an end. That's a beautiful thing. It's through the battle plan of this scroll that all of the injustices that we experience and decry in this life will cease. It's through the battle plan of this scroll that all tragedy and disaster and evil that, you know, afflict us and cause us to scratch our head and wonder what in the world is going on and to cry will end. And it's through the battle plan of this scroll that sin and death itself will die, that the people of God will be redeemed, that we will receive our inheritance, and that God Himself will answer the very prayer that He taught us to pray through our Lord, which is, in part, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything for God's people depends on the opening of the scroll. So John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the rainbow, lightning-flashing throne of heaven, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. So he's really strong, but his strength is demonstrated in the volume with which he shouts. He speaks so loudly, his voice is so strong that, as we'll see, it penetrates all of heaven, all of earth, and even the realm of the dead, that which is under the earth, and asks a question. And the question is, who is worthy? There's the word. The word that until now has been reserved for use only for the one who sits on the rainbow throne of heaven. Who's like God? Who else is the question? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And so in the big drama of this vision of heaven, you've got to imagine right now this hugely pregnant pause where everyone in heaven and earth and under the earth waits for an answer. And none immediately comes. John says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it, which means what? It means that all is lost. All suffering and affliction that plagues us, never going to end. All of the injustices, all of the wrongs that we suffer, never going to end. Evil, tragedy, disaster, get used to it. Sin and death will never die, and there will be no redemption for any of us. We will all be left in our sin and to the consequences of it for all of eternity. Our dream of an inheritance of a new heavens and earth will not come to pass, and the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will forever go unanswered. It's devastating. And John, who comprehends this, just comes undone. I mean, he just loses it. He says in verse 4, then I began to weep. And not mildly, 
I began to weep greatly. I began to weep loudly, which if you kind of pull out of the story for a minute and you just think about your life and existence and all of the stuff that happens in this world and all of eternity and all of those things, that's what we're left with, bottom line, when we actually pause from the busyness of all of our lives and think it through if there is no Jesus, if there is no Lamb, if there is no one to take up this battle plan, if there is no salvation, for that matter, if there's no rainbow throne and no one on it. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy, there's that word again, to open the scroll or to look into it, and so it looks like all is lost for a moment. But then John says, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. When we see Christ, our weeping ends. It's a very practical book for all of its poetry, for all of its images, for all of the things that make you go, oh, good grief, what is that? It's worth unearthing. It's the only book in the Bible, though all are a blessing, that specifically says, blessed are those who heed the words written in this book. That's pretty significant. John says, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. And then he says, and it's a word of sight. It's one of my favorite. He says, behold, it just means look. And then we see Christ in this vision. Follow the vision. Don't get lost. It's worth the journey. He says, behold, and he begins to describe him, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has what? He has overcome so as to open the book and it's seven seals. And so John, who's now been told to look, to see the lion from the tribe of Judah, looks. And he says, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lion. No, he sees a lamb. And you're like, this is why I get confused when I come to this book. You know, it's like, huh? It's all metaphor, guys. But it speaks of a very real Christ and of who He really is, and of what He's really done and is doing, and yet will do. He looks, and He sees a lamb, and the lamb is standing. So He's in the posture of life. You know, when you're living, you can stand up. When you die, not so much. So He's in the posture of life, a lamb standing, and yet He's standing there as if slain. So it's very obvious when you look at Him that at some point in the past, He's died, and yet now He lives having seven horns. Now, what did I say about the number seven and taking it literally? The number seven is the number of completion all throughout the Bible. God creates, right? And on the seventh day, He rests. He's done. It's complete. That's one example. It's the number of completion. And the horn is the emblem of the strength of an animal. He's saying by this, He has complete and perfect strength having seven horns or perfect strength, and seven eyes. There it is again. The emblem of insight and understanding. So he has perfect insight and understanding is the point, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so his perfect strength and insight and understanding, and most importantly, his mission extends throughout the entirety of the earth. Go into all the world, Jesus says, making disciples. 
And he came, this lamb, and look what he does. He took the scroll out of the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who was and is and is to come, and who sat on the throne. He doesn't ask for it. He hasn't offered it. And he's not commanded to take it. He just, he just takes it. Now, I'm going to pause for a minute because I know your head is spinning, okay? And that's all right. And I'm going to pause also because, you know, one of the challenges with this book is that I know that people come in here every Sunday and it's like their life is a wreck, you know? And so they come in here looking for an encouragement and strength and direction and healing and, you know, all of the things that, that are offered to us through the gospel. And so now, like, if that's you, you show up and I'm talking about cosmic thrones and four living creatures and seven eyes and seven horns and millennial kingdoms, yes or no, and so how does this help? What difference is it supposed to make in your life now? It's supposed to rush to the aid of your faith. It's supposed to prop it up when it's weak and failing. It's supposed to come to you and to give you a fresh vision of the Lord your God who is your champion, who has a plan by which you suffer, meaning that it's for purpose and that there's significance to it, who has perfect insight and understanding into all things, whose wisdom is unquestionable, whose strength does not fail, not him and not you. It's meant to help you to see Jesus. Weeping ends when you see Christ and worship begins. So look at the images. John is told to look for a lion. Okay, now when you read it, you've got to stop and go, what is a lion? He's the king. There is no one greater in his realm than he. And what is the realm of Christ, parenthetically? The whole earth. Actually, the heavens and the earth and even under the earth. The voice went out who was worthy. Lions don't lose. They don't lose their battles. He's from the tribe of Judah. That means he's human, speaks of his humanity. Well, that's significant because if he's going to rescue humanity from sin by suffering, he needs to be an innocent human who suffers on behalf of guilty humans, right? But he's also the root of David. That's confusing, isn't it? Because, you know, the tree comes from its root, if you will. David proceeds from the root. He's, he pre-exists David, but then when you read his genealogy, you realize that, no, David pre-exists him because he's born in the lineage of David, who is also of the tribe of Judah. And so it's like, how can he both be before and after David? He can't unless he's God. It speaks of his divinity. And we need a Savior, by the way, who's divine as well. For we have sinned against an infinite being, and our sin carries an infinite penalty. We need one who can suffer infinitely. There's only one in all the heavens and earth and under the earth. And what does he fight against? And how does he fight? Well, John is told to look for a lion. What he sees instead is a lamb. The lamb is standing. And yet he looks like he's been killed at some point. So obviously he's conquered death, which everywhere in the Bible is caused by sin. He's conquered sin and death. And how does he conquer sin and death? How does he fight? How do we fight? He fought by laying down his innocent life 
that he might win the salvation and the freedom of guilty people through sacrifice. He has seven horns. It's not, you know, count them up. They represent something. His perfect strength and seven eyes, his mission extends throughout the earth. And he's given us that mission. And he doesn't ask for the scroll, and it isn't offered, and he doesn't have to be commanded to take it. He simply walks up and takes what belongs to him. It speaks to his equality with the one who sits on the rainbow throne of heaven. He is co-equal with the Father. That's a vision of Jesus. That's the one who alone is worthy. That's the one who thought so much of you that he laid down his life to redeem you. The point being that whether you live in the first century or whether you live in the 21st century, the scroll is in the hand of Christ, which means that the sufferings and afflictions that plague us will one day come to an end, that injustice will be dealt with perfectly, that tragedy, evil, and disaster will be no more, that sin and death itself is appointed for death that our redemption is secure, and that our inheritance, which is what we're supposed to live for, will be ours, new heaven, new earth. It's paradise. Jesus is going to answer the very prayer that He taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that should encourage us. The plan of God includes our sufferings, and that's good news, not bad news. And finally, it means that failure and defeat will not be the final word in your life because your life will follow the pattern of the Lord who suffers, but His suffering ends in glory. That's the future for the people of God. And that's encouraging, you see, and it should strengthen you when life stinks and it should enable you when you see these glimpses of the glory of Jesus to worship even if that requires you to worship through tears. And worship is what happens next. It's like all of this occurs, the scroll is in the hand of the Lamb, and the worship service full-on breaks out. Verse 8, when Jesus had taken this book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the throne, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song to the one who alone makes all things new, saying, worthy are you, there's that word again, to take the scroll and to break its seals and to carry out its battle plan, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It's awesome. So the inner circle around the throne, the living creatures and then the 24 elders start worshiping, right? But what happens is that it then emanates out. See, now the angels join in. They're getting excited. John says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. How many is that? It's seven. It's the perfect blessing. It's full. It's complete. It's the perfect titles to rule for the Lord, you see? 
And then in light of that blessing and that worship, what happens? The worship service gets bigger. It expands. It emanates out. It keeps growing. John says, in every created thing, everything, you know, the lizard in the backyard, trees, you know, I mean, like the whole of everything, every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. It's comprehensive. I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept on saying, amen. Do you know what the word amen or amen means? In the Greek language, it means, so let it be. So let it be. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept on saying, so let it be. And the elders fell down and worshiped as well they should, and as well we should. Why? Because all is not lost. The scroll is in the hands of the Lamb. It's powerful. And it seems to me that this pattern of ever-increasing worship as a result, even when life is tough, ought to be found in my life. And it ought to be found in yours, you know? I mean, seriously, it ought to start here, and then it should get a little bigger, and then after that it should get a little bigger, and then after that it should get a little bigger, and then it ought to start spilling out of us. Good grief, and now it's showing up in the way that I speak, in the way that I preach, in the way that I lead, in the kind of friend, in the kind of husband, in the kind of father, in the kind of leader, in the kind of whatever, kind of citizen, the kind of member of this community that I am, and then it's going to spread out because now I'm going to tell other people about this king, and then they're going to start worshiping, and then it's going to spread, and then they're going to tell other people, and they're going to start worshiping, and then it's going to spread. You get an idea? It's like an infection, except it's awesome. And if it's not spreading in your heart and through your life, take a look at this vision and figure out why. To him who sits on the throne says everything and everyone, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, so let it be. And the elders fell down and worshiped as well they should and as well we should. Everything is going according to plan even when it looks like it isn't. The scroll is in the hand of the one with perfect strength, inside understanding and wisdom. And everything is well. So let it be. Let's pray. Father, we do praise You. And we thank You for the Lamb that was slain and yet stands. We praise You for the one who loved and came and gave for the one that, though he was rich, endured the poverty of this earth, that we who are impoverished might be made rich through faith in him. We thank you, Lord, for the vision of him that we see in this book. Father and Son, surrounded by the blazing torches of the Holy Spirit, 
in the throne room of God, and we praise you for the counsels that we are able to peer into and for what they say and what they mean. We thank you, Lord, that a day is coming when all of the suffering and tragedy of this world will end, when all injustice will cease, and when we will receive the inheritance that is surely ours through the victory of the Lord. And we thank you that even now, God, everything is going according to plan even when we don't understand it. And I pray that you would grab us with this vision and not let go. Let us endure what sufferings you've ordained for us in this life. Let us persevere through them and let us bring glory to you, ever increasing worship and glory, even in the midst of them we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.